Uh, so last week, we looked at the first and greatest commandment, right? The, that commandment to love God. Uh, and that is the, the root of our faith. That is the foundation of our faith. We love God for who he is. We love God for what it is that he has already done for us in Christ. And we love him for what he has promised to do for us. And that love for God should spill out into absolutely everything that, that we do. There is no part of our lives that shouldn't be influenced or directed or informed by that love for God. Um, but as much as it is an attitude of our heart, that love for God is also a skill that we learn and develop over time. It's something that we get better at as we do it more. Uh, and, and not that we ever get there, not that we ever arrive, not that we are ever capable of loving God perfectly, but that is our goal. That is what we are striving for. That is what we are reaching for. And so like any skill, it's not something that you grow or in or strengthen by accident, right? Or just by casually doing it when the fancy strikes you. You don't get better at playing the piano by just standing here and looking at it or by going over and plunking out three or four notes once a week, right? You get better by intentionally, on purpose, on schedule, in a pre-planned way, taking the time to work at developing that skill. And so we, as a local gathering of believers, as the church, uh, are, are setting aside this time, every single Sunday morning, uh, to practice, to grow in that skill of loving God. Now, this should not be the full extent of what it means for us to love God as believers. Uh, if you only express your love for him by coming to church, you have sold yourself short. Uh, that is, uh, that you've missed the point. Uh, but rather, this is an opportunity for us to gather together as a body and practice this skill that we believe to be of the utmost importance. Now, this wasn't the only uh, commandment that Jesus identified. It was the first commandment. And he said, a second is like it. Um, so in Matthew 22 was where we were, uh, where Jesus was asked, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, like anybody who deals with the public on any sort of regular basis, Jesus ends up having the same conversation multiple times with different people. Anybody ever have the same conversation over and over and over at work? No, we don't accept returns past 30 days. No, we don't accept returns past 30 days. Yes, that is your new uh, you know, yes, that is your new bill. You, you have the same conversation over and over. And so we're going to look at Luke 10 this morning, which is another spot where Jesus has essentially the same conversation. So we're going to pick up in Luke 10, uh, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said this, and he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So this is 
the same conversation, basically, with just a few different characters involved. Um, Now, what Jesus said in Matthew was not a unique understanding. That that was a common understanding of the law. Um, And other people had arrived there, too. And so this, this lawyer asked what he had to do to be a part of the kingdom, to inherit eternal life. Uh, now, when it says lawyer there, that's not an attorney in the sense that, that we understand it, but it's a student of the law. It was somebody whose job it was to know and to understand and to interpret what the Mosaic law, what the Old Testament said and, and what it meant. And so instead of just answering him, Jesus said, you're a lawyer, you tell me what the law says. And he answers correctly, right? He, answer, he says the exact same thing that Jesus said in, in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And it, the love here is implied. And love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus responds, yeah, you got it. Yes, if you want eternal life, if you want to be a part of the kingdom, if you want to get to heaven, that's all that you have to do. All that you have to do is love God with everything that you are, everything that you have, all the time, without fail or fault. And love your neighbor as yourself, at all times and in all circumstances, for your entire time here on earth. That's all you need to do. (laughs) So, who has loved God and loved their neighbor with their whole heart for the last 10 seconds? Anybody? Okay, we got two. Brave. 10 minutes. Since you got up this morning. Okay, we haven't made it very far, guys. <laughs> this is not good. So nobody has done this. Nobody can possibly do this. Except, except for Jesus. Because we have not been able to keep these commandments, because we have fallen short of that standard that God has set for us, we don't get the reward. We don't deserve the reward. So if by keeping the com- these commands, we get eternal life, then a non-eternal life, or death, is the wages for our failure to keep them. But Jesus came and he kept these two commandments. His whole life, he loved his heavenly Father with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength, and he loved his neighbor as he loved himself. And he demonstrated that by dying on the cross in our place, taking on himself the punishment for our sins, our failure, our rebellion against God, and instead giving to us the reward that he had earned through his perfect and holy life. And so when we say that we have faith in Christ, this is what we mean. We say that we are not trusting in our ability to keep the commands here because we can't. We've failed since we got out of bed this morning, right? We are not trusting in our ability, but we are trusting that Christ has already done it for us, on behalf of us, his people, on behalf of all of those people who will say, listen, I'm done with the world. I'm done with my sin. I don't want any part of it anymore. Instead, I'm all in with Jesus. I'm following him. That is repentance, to turn away from our sin and turn towards Jesus. And following his example in everything that we think, everything that we say, and everything that we do. So we seek, we try, we want to be like him in thought and word and in deed. Not because we earn his love 
for us through this, but because he has already demonstrated his love for us. And so the lawyer here, presented with this, could have asked for some help, right? This would have been a great opportunity for him to say, yeah, Jesus, I understand that, but that's really hard, and I can't, I can't live up to that. I can't do that. And that's the attitude that Christ asks all of us to come to him with. God, I can't do this on my own. I need you to do this for me. But instead, this man tries instead to make himself look good. He thinks he's got this in the bag. Uh, Verse 29, it says, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So there was a line of reasoning at at this point in time uh, that, that this love of neighbor definitely only extended to the Jews. And it might have only extended to those within sort of your immediate you know, neighborhood, your circle of influence. And it might have only extended to those who were observant Jews, those who did a good job at keeping the law and the commandments. And so if somebody didn't keep the law, or if somebody was too far removed from you, you didn't need to love them as a neighbor. And so he thought that as long as Jesus drew the same boundaries, as long as Jesus drew the same circle as he did, that he was good. He was going to be okay. Do you see the arrogance here? He had been given these two commands, which are beautiful and impossible. And he, the piece that he wants to discuss, the piece that he wants to better understand is, now just who is my neighbor? Who is it that I have to love like that? I mean, what could Jesus possibly say in answer to this question that would end well for him? The question was designed to make him look good, but all that it did ultimately was expose the sin that is in his heart. So Jesus responds, as he often does, by telling a story, uh, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, or two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So we have this unfortunate man traveling this dangerous and difficult road. Uh, There were all sorts of brigands and robbers and thieves um, and um, one of, the, one of the things that I came across, it, it was 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. And the elevation drops 3,000 feet over that 17 miles. So just by way of comparison, from the river in Caribou by the dam to the top of the hill on Route 161 by Rosignols, it's like 12 miles. 500 feet of elevation change. So 
just this huge difference in height and the dryness of it and the rocky crags and everything. It was not a hospitable place in any way, shape, or form. Um, and so this man had been beaten and robbed and left for dead. And you have these first two people come by, these Jews, right? This priest and the Levite. And they were obligated by the law. They were obligated by the old covenant to help those who needed help. And they would have known that, right? They both had religious duties at the, at the temple. They would have known what the law required them to do. But they found it inconvenient or dangerous or difficult to help. So they walked on by. They passed him on the other side. They crossed the road so that they wouldn't have to get too close to him. And then along comes this Samaritan. Now, the Jews and Samaritans were culturally and, and racially enemies, right? The Samaritans were leftovers from when the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel split. Uh, and, and so Israel got carted off into captivity. They intermarried with the nations around them. And so the Samaritans were those who were left over. They were, they were half-breeds. They, um, they had intermarried with the nations around them, which was against the old covenant law, and they had pursued other gods. The, so the Jews would have viewed the Samaritans as, as impure, unholy traitors. But then the Samaritans would have viewed the Jew, Jews as, as arrogant, prideful bigots. Right? So this was not a healthy relationship between these two groups of people. And so to a, to a Jewish person hearing this story, the question would have been, who could trust a Samaritan? Who could trust such a miserable sort of person? How could you possibly expect a Samaritan to do the right thing or a good thing? But this person, the Samaritan, this lowest possible scum to this Jewish audience, inconvenienced himself by stopping to help by loading the man up on his own donkey. And he didn't ask if this man had done something to deserve what had happened to him. He didn't ask if, well, do you have the, the resources to be able to take care of this on your own? He didn't tell him to, to call the Romans for assistance, but he saw a human being in need, and he met that need with what he had. He administered first aid, and he paid for his recuperation at the end. He saw this human need, and he did everything in his power to meet that need. And so Jesus then asks, who was the neighbor to this unfortunate man? And the lawyer couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan, right? He said the one, the one who showed him mercy. So Jesus says, then go, and you Jewish lawyer, be like that Samaritan that you despise so much. So when you see a fellow human being who is in need, try to meet that need, even if it is costly or inconvenient or dangerous to you. So this is ultimately what it means to love another person, right? To see that need and to meet that need with the resources that you have. Uh, in 1 John 3, um, 17, it says, if, if you have the world's goods, if you have material goods and you see a brother in need, you have an obligation to help him. 
James 2.15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one, of them, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So if a brother or a sister has a need, spiritual platitudes and well wishes or thoughts and prayers are insufficient by themselves. This was the pattern that we, uh, that we saw in the early church, right, in Acts 4. Uh, it talks about how the, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. This was the pattern of of Jesus' miracles, right? He identified that that this person who has come before him had a need, and and then he executed that miracle. He rewrote creation to address that person's need. So to love others is to see and to understand their situation and to provide what it is that you have to meet that need. That can be physical in nature, talking about food, clothing, shelter, right? It can be financial in nature. It can be relational in nature. We have a tremendous need in the society that we live in that is wildly unmet, that need for human compassion, human relationship, love, brotherly love. And so if we see that need, then we have that obligation to meet it, to befriend the friendless. He sets the lonely in families, remember. There is also a spiritual need that exists the need that every single one of us has for a savior, the need that every single one of us has for relationship with the God that created us, a need that can never be met by any other means than God's grace and love poured out. So why then, why should we love others? We love others because of who made them. Now, when we read the creation story in Genesis 1.26, uh, it says that God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so it is only mankind, it's only on mankind that, that God bestows his image. Um, now, I'm, I'm going to read a, a passage here from a, um, from a theologian named Wayne Grudem. I tried as best I could to put it into my own words, but every time I either came too close to what he had said or it didn't sound good. So I'm just going to read what he wrote. Uh, And he said, It will probably amaze us to realize that when the creator of the universe wanted to create something in his image, something more like himself than all the rest of creation, he made us. This realization will give us a profound sense of dignity and significance as we reflect on the excellence of all the rest of God's creation the starry universe, the abundant earth, the world full of plants and animals, and the angelic kingdoms are remarkable, even magnificent. But we 
But we are more like our creator than any of these things. We are the culmination of God's infinitely wise and skillful work of creation. Even though sin has greatly marred that likeness, we nonetheless now reflect much of it and shall even more as we grow in likeness to Christ. Yet we must remember that even fallen sinful man has the status of being in God's image. Every single human being, no matter how much the image of God is marred by sin or illness or weakness or age or any other disability, still has the status of being in God's image and therefore must be treated with the dignity and respect that is due to God's image bearer. This has profound implications for our conduct towards others. It means that people of every race deserve equal dignity and rights. It means that elderly people, those who are seriously ill, the mentally retarded, and children yet unborn deserve full protection and honor as human beings. If we ever deny our unique status in creation as God's only image bearers, we will soon begin to depreciate the value of human life. We'll tend to see humans as merely a higher form of animal, and we'll begin to treat others as such. So every single person has a dignity, a worth, and a value that is entirely outside of their skills and abilities and their position in life. It is totally outside of what they can offer to you or to society in general. Rather, their dignity, their worth, and their value is rooted in the fact that they bear that imago dei, that image of God. And so when we come along and we see someone in need and we help them in some way, we are upholding their worth and their value and their dignity as a fellow image bearer of God. We say, I see in you, I see in you something of the image of my heavenly father. And so I am going to help you. This is, a, this is one of the motivations that, that Jesus speaks to. In Matthew 25, when he says, uh, speaking of the second coming, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, this is Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from the other as as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when? When did we see you? When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, 
saying, Lord, when did we not see you? When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he said to them, truly, I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do to me. And these will go away into eternal, into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So we must help those who are in need because they are image bearers of God. And our heart towards those in need, our heart towards them, reflects the heart that we have towards our Heavenly Father. When we help them, Jesus says that we are, in effect, helping Him. When we love others, we are demonstrating, we are working out a love for God. But when we fail to love others, then we are simultaneously failing to love God. So we love them because of who has made them. Now we also love them because of how we have first been loved by God. Uh, We're going to read a section here from 1 John 3. 1 John 3. Starting in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Then jumping down to chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be, to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected in us, so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. 
If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Thank you for your patience. I could not chop anything out of that without doing an injustice to the text. So God has loved us. And because God has loved us when we deserved punishment, so we should love others, even when they don't deserve to be loved. We should love them as Christ has loved us, with that same self-sacrificial love, a love that is willing to give up everything, to be made real and whole and tangible. But there are consequences to getting this wrong, right? If we miss this, there are some very severe consequences. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brothers. If we do not love our brothers, if we do not love our sisters, we cannot claim to love God. To claim to love God without loving others is to misunderstand the way that God has loved us. To claim to love God without loving others is to lie. To claim to love God without loving others is to have what James calls a, a dead faith. That's, that's what we saw in Matthew 25, right? Those who thought that they had loved God, those who thought that they were serving him, but had failed to love the people around them, were not truly loving or serving God at all. So if we would claim the name of Christ, if we would claim to have faith in him, we must we have to love one another. Not just a feeling, not just a general attitude, but we must pursue understanding what a person's needs are and then pursue meeting those needs at a financial, at a time, at an emotional cost to ourselves. Because this, this is the nature of Christ's love for us. And as we do that, we reflect his love to others. He pursued us. He didn't wait to be invited. He didn't make humanity fill out a general assistance form. But his love sought us out, pursued us where we were, and loved us there, right in the middle of our mess. But this work, this love, takes practice. Takes practice. Some of you are in the helping professions, where you help people. There's a technical element to what you do, right? You know, the, if you're a nurse, you need to know the needles and the medicines and the buttons and all of the, all of the everything that's just kind of magic to me. If you're, if you're doing something, there's a technical side to what you are doing. But a doctor who shows up and is rude and arrogant and dismissive, 
That doctor hasn't fulfilled his full responsibility to help, right? He needs to learn more than just the, the technical aspects of it. But you get better at helping people, at truly helping them, not just the technical side, but the relational side. You get better at helping people as time goes on because you practice it. And so we must, we must love others. And so we, as a church, must commit ourselves to practicing that, to practice loving others in a Christ-like fashion. Uh, so what we're going to do is, um, the beginning of October, we are going to begin to set aside time as a, as a congregation and as indi individuals to strengthen those muscles, to grow our skills at loving one another. Once a week, we're going to gather together in groups of 10-ish uh, people, in homes ideally, at the church if necessary, for an hour, hour and a half or so, to start by sharing our lives together. Share what's been going on in your life, in your world, in your home, in your job, what's been good, what's been hard. And that's an opportunity for you to take notes, to be a good listener, to find out about the lives of the people around you, what's good in their lives, what's wonderful, what's beautiful, what's hard, what are the needs in their lives. And then once you have identified those needs, we get to meet them, right? We see the need and we meet it. Now, sometimes there is a need that only God can meet, right? There is a need for a change in somebody's heart. A spouse, a child, a parent, a loved one. That is a change that only God can meet. There is a need for healing in hopeless situations, for reconciliation. So these are needs that only God can meet. And so we pray. We pray together. We beseech God to work, to change, to meet that need. But sometimes those needs are quite a bit more tangible, right? Car's broken down. I need a ride to work until Thursday when the mechanic can fix it. I got to get some groceries. I don't have any way to shovel my steps. I need somebody to watch a kid or five during an appointment. <laughs> so the, those are needs. Those are needs that we have the opportunity to demonstrate God's love to one another by meeting those needs. But sometimes all that somebody really needs is to know that they are loved, to know that they belong, to know that they are cared for and thought of and remembered. A phone call or a text. Hey, how'd that appointment go? I know that you were really worried about that. A card, a note of encouragement, uh, a, a, a special treat next week that they mentioned that they really loved. Now this requires for us to be a little open, to be a little vulnerable. In order for you to practice loving others, you need to know what their needs are, right? But in order for other people to practice loving you, they need to know what your needs are. Now, I struggle with this. I have a really hard time with this. I would rather help somebody for an entire day 
than ask for help for a single hour. It's my pride, it's my self-sufficiency, because I think that I am enough. I think that I should be enough to meet all of the needs in my life. When in reality, that's not how God has designed us. God has designed us to need him first and foremost, and I can never meet that need. And just as God has designed us to need him, he has designed us to need each other. And so I need help in slaying that pride and that self-sufficiency. Because in doing so, in my sin, I am preventing the people around me from being faithful to God's command to love others. I am depriving people around me of the opportunity to be obedient to God's command. My sinful pride is preventing other people from serving God the way that they should be. So we're going to take some time then to find out what is going on in each other's lives. We're going to take some time to be a little vulnerable and open up to each other about what is going on in our lives. We're going to take some time to to discuss the passage from the past Sunday, to draw our hearts and our thinking together so that we may truly be of one single heart and one single mind as we walk alongside one another. We're going to love each other by helping each other arrive at that common understanding of that shared experience. Now, as we do this, just outside of that group, we will also hear about needs in the community around us. Because we're going to have a coworker who's a single mom and is out sick and is struggling to keep everything together. We're going to hear about that elderly neighbor who fell and could use some assistance. So these are opportunities then. When we see that need, those are opportunities for us as individuals and as a group to show the love that God has shown us to an unbelieving world, to help those in need. Now, there is a very real possibility, even bordering on a certainty, that this is not always going to be fun or exciting. Sometimes it will be boring. Sometimes you will be sitting there at home saying, I just don't want to spend another night with those weirdos. There are two very good reasons to get in the car and go do it anyway. The first one is in Philippians 2.3, where it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So this is not just about your enjoyment. This is not just about your entertainment. This is not just about what you get out of it. But this is also about helping others to grow in love as well. You are there to help them grow as much as they are there to help you grow. Secondly, very often, we feel the same way about doing other things that are beneficial for us. Going to the gym, right? This is, this is, this is a common thing for me because this is something I struggle with. I need to, I need to get my act together in that respect, but you feel the same way about going to the gym. But you still go, even though you don't really want to, because because you want to be physically stronger, because you want to be physically healthier. And so even when it's hard, especially when it's hard 
Go, show up for one another. Go to learn to better, to learn better how to love people, even when they're difficult to love. Because I don't know if you've met some of you, but you can be a little difficult to love sometimes, right? I can be a little difficult to love sometimes. I understand that about myself. But if we practice, if we work at it, if we put in the reps, then we can get better at loving others. And in loving others, ultimately, we are demonstrating the greatness, the surpassing worth and beauty of knowing Jesus Christ. In John 13, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So the world is full of of affinity groups, right? Groups that are based around common interests or common characteristics, hobbies, age groups, life stages. You've got the ATV club, you've got the fishing game club, you've got lines and rotary built around you know, the, the common community interests, you've got play groups, you've got PTA. These are all groups that are based around something that all of the people in them have in common. But we, as the church, we have something greater in common than any of these things. It says in Colossians 3.11 that here, so within the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So in Christ, as Christians, we have something in common with each other, something holding us together that should transcend, should be stronger, more powerful than any ethnic or national identity, greater than any demographics, greater than shared interests or hobbies. But what what holds us together should be stronger than any offense, be more robust than any minor disagreement. It should endure in the face of trials that would tear apart any of those lesser affinity groups. So when we gather together in any way, shape, or form as the church, we gather together into groups that don't make sense to the world. And in doing so, we proclaim that there is something greater than the world at work in us. I mean, look at us here. Just the people who are here today. Not all of similar ages. We don't all have shared interests or hobbies. I don't think anybody's here for the power or prestige or influence that they can win by being here this morning. So what is it? What is it that brings us together? There is something at work in us that is greater than anything the world understands, that is bringing together all of these people who, by worldly standards, don't belong together. There is something at work in us more powerful than my politics. Something that defines me more than my generation or my career. There is something that draws us and binds us together that will never change or fail. And that is the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so when somebody sees this, right, when we invite somebody into this group, by our diversity, by our differentness, We are demonstrating that Christ is more important to us than anything else. And that anything else that might divide us, we treat as secondary or 
tertiary or whatever those further levels are. All of those things pale in comparison to the importance of the unity that we have in Christ. So as a church, we are called to love God. We are called to love others and to make disciples. These directions are so important. They are so critical that they should be woven into, they should be a part of everything that we do at home, at work, at play, here when the church gathers together, driving down the road, lying in our beds, watching TV, being on TV. We should all, as Christians, want to spend, to dedicate our lives to these things because that is what Jesus did. But you don't get better at these things unless you practice them. So each week we set aside time as a church to practice, to grow in our love for God by gathering together in worship on Sunday morning. Likewise, each week we will be providing time for us to gather together in in smaller groups, in, in community groups, to practice and grow in our love for one another. Now when and where will kind of depend on how many people are interested in participating. I'm not going to hold anybody's feet to the fire on this. But if you, want, um, if you want to practice loving other people, if you want to practice growing in your love for one another, then uh, next week there will be uh, a place for you to, uh, to sign up and, and indicate that interest. There will be at least one group that does meet here at the church on Sunday. And then next week, Next week, we will be looking at how we will intentionally set aside time to practice making disciples. And friends, I am very excited for that. We love God, we love others, and we make disciples. Let's pray. Father, we do love you. God, we thank you. We give you glory for what you have done for what you have done in Christ, God, saving us, redeeming us, giving us a a new birth, God, washing us clean. God, we thank you, and we live in, in expectation of what it is that you are going to do, God. We look forward to that day when you come again, when your work will be finished, complete, made whole, But God, we struggle sometimes to love others the way that you have loved us. God, we are selfish. We are self-centered. We are jealous of our, of our time and our resources. So God, we ask that you would be at work in our hearts, that you would give us hearts that see needs and are broken by them, that we see needs God, give us the desire to help. Give us the desire to meet those needs. Give us the desire to do what Jesus did, to see the need and to meet it, God, because we want to be more like Jesus in every single way. So God, as we we walk down the road, as we walk down the hallways of our jobs, God, as we walk through this life, present us, Father. Show us the needs that exist and give us a heart that desires to meet them with the love of Christ, 
demonstrating the love of Christ, showing, proving the love of Christ to a world that needs nothing more and nothing less than that. Father, we love you and we praise you this morning. And we ask that your word would work in us powerfully in the week to come. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go in peace.